The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you have your Bibles, would you open with me to Matthew chapter 3, the third chapter of Matthew, where we're going to begin our study this morning. We're finishing up. This is our last message in a series we've been doing all fall called Prophets and Kings. We've been looking at different kings, different prophets. And uh, this morning we look at the prophet John the Baptist and his interface with two kings, actually, King Herod and King Jesus. I've got to start with a confession, though. Last night, uh, Bev and I were doing some decorating in the house, and uh, there was football on TV. I didn't have time to watch it. So I uh, texted four of my A&M friends and four of my Longhorn friends, and I said, uh, is it true that the UT defense is laying down so that uh, Klein will get the Heisman and Johnny football won't? For the next hours, my phone lit up like these Christmas trees up here. <laughs> it was the greatest thing to watch. I'm just confessing that. It's sinful on my part. I stirred that pot. I didn't have to respond. It was wonderful to watch, actually. It was just a great time. I appreciate those folks that fluffed up all these trees and did all the decorating for us. It was actually beautiful. So we're grateful for uh, all that they've done. Thank you. Uh, This morning we're going to begin our study in uh, Matthew 3. When we started our series on prophets and kings, we said that uh, the prophet had two primary functions. His functions were primarily at other functions, but the two primary functions were to rebuke and to reveal, to rebuke the sin of the nation, the king and his people, and to reveal the will of God. Sometimes uh, the will of God was for the future, like prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. We'll look at one of those this morning, and the Messiah's future kingdom. And oftentimes he prophesied in the present tense. He prophesied about the sin of the people and how they needed to turn from him. Sometimes he was outside the city prophesying into the city. Sometimes he was inside the city in the very throne room of the king. Sometimes he never interfaced with the king. He just talked to the king through intermediaries or through that word. And so we see the prophet, the Hebrew word for prophet is nabim. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. It's nabim, N-A-B-I-M. It means to bubble forth. The prophet bubbled forth, not his own message, but the message that God gave to him and implanted into him. So in this, our final study of prophets and kings, we're going to look at uh, a rather unusual prophet, John the Baptist, or baptizer, and as I said, his association with King Jesus and King Herod. Matthew chapter 3, let's do something a little differently I've done the other two hours this morning. Let's stand together as I read from God's Word. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you write in your Bibles, underline verse 2, that's the proclamation that John makes and that Jesus makes. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his pathway straight. So Matthew's writing, and he said, By the way, John is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah had spoken that many centuries before and said, He is the forerunner. He is the one preparing the way of the Lord. Verse 4. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and his food were locusts and the wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Father, as we look at the word, we pray that you would teach us so that our lives will be changed, so that we'll look more like Jesus. 
We ask it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. You would have to say that John the Baptist was a rather unique dude, wouldn't you? I mean, he was unusual in a lot of ways. He was unusual in the way he dressed. I mean, he was not at the height of fashion on that day or today. He was certainly unusual in his eating habits, locusts and wild honey. I imagine the wild honey was to chase down the locusts, don't you? I mean, he was rather unusual. He was not a fan of the established religious leaders, and he wasn't concerned about becoming their friends. He could care less about the religious elite because he looked at them, and he used not a term of endearment, but he called them a bunch of snakes in the grass. He said, you are a brood of vipers. And so John the Baptist was not about winning friends and influencing enemies. He was all about lifting up the Messiah that he was the forerunner for. He was unique. He had no degrees. He had no education that was formal. We recognize that basically his occupation was prophet. His mailing address was the wilderness. And this is the one whom God chose to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's a rather unusual guy. In fact, if we saw John walk in the room, we'd probably walk the other way. But John was a great man. In fact, I titled this message, uh, No Greater Man, because Jesus says there's no greater man who's been born of woman other than John. When John, the beloved disciple, wrote his gospel, he wrote about John the Baptist. And he wrote this about John the Baptist. He said, there came a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. John was not the light. John the Baptist was not the light. But he came to testify about the one who was the light. John the Baptist was sent in the world to be a testimony of who the true light was. He was one who would point people to Jesus. He was one who who would say, Jesus is the man you need to follow. In fact, when Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist looked at him and said, I'm not even worthy to untie the laces on your sandal. And so John was the one who was a light pointing people to Jesus, leading people to Jesus. He was the one who was the forerunner or the herald for Jesus. And in Matthew's gospel, he presents Jesus. If you want a brief outline of Matthew's gospel, and all the men who come on Thursday morning should know this. We, we're studying Matthew's gospel right now, and I start by reviewing this right here. So if you're a Thursday morning guy, uh, the purpose of Matthew's gospel, what is it, guys? He, Jesus is the rightful king. You can say it with me. We do it every Thursday morning. The rightful king. The rejected king and the returning king. There's your outline of Matthew's gospel. Jesus Christ is the rightful king, rejected king, returning king. He's a rightful king for a number of reasons. If you look at Matthew's gospel, he begins with the genealogy, and he traces that genealogy through David because David is the ultimate king of Israel, and he's writing about the kingship of Jesus. And so he says, I want you to know that Jesus has the right credentials to be king. He has the right credentials. He comes from the right lineage, the right background. He has the legal right and the regal right to be king. And then he progresses through his gospel. We come to John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist comes on the scene, Matthew is presenting his argument that Jesus is the rightful king. And basically he says that Jesus is the rightful king. And you can see his ministry being launched at the right time and the right place with the right words. First of all, Jesus' ministry was launched at the right time. What do I mean by that? Well, if you turn ahead to the next chapter, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, it says in Matthew 4, 12, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist was taken into custody, Jesus withdrew into Galilee, or if you have the NIV, it says that he went into the Galilees or returned to the Galilees. Now, what's that about? How do I get the right time out of that? Get the right time out of it because John is in prison. But what does John being in prison have to do with the launching of Jesus' ministry? 
Well, in the ancient Near East at that time, if a king was going to go to villages and to towns and to, to speak to his constituency or maybe to quell a disturbance or to answer questions about issues, how would they know if the king was coming? I mean, if our president was going to visit Central Texas sometime in the next few months and, and he was going to speak at the Expo Center, then there would be press would be informed, credentials would go out, advertisements would take place, and you would see about it in our newspapers, online, various places, and you would know that he could come. And if you're an invited guest, you could get to the Expo Center and see him, et cetera, et cetera. But, but there would be tremendous advertisement telling us that the president is coming. How did they know in that day and age if the king was coming? I mean, they just get online and send a message to the next town. Is that what they did? Send texts to their friends that live over there. By the way, he's just left our village. He's headed your way. I mean, that's ridiculous, isn't it? None of that existed. So what happened is there was a uigelion, a proclaimer, a herald. In ancient Near Eastern protocol, a forerunner or a herald would go to proclaim the coming of the king. So if the king was coming, the forerunner would go ahead to different villages. Sometimes it was only hours ahead, sometimes days ahead, sometimes weeks ahead. And he would say, the king is coming. And this was John's privilege. This was John's responsibility. He was like the uagelion, the heralder, the proclaimer, the pronouncer, the forerunner at that point in time. So just as someone would go village to village to proclaim the king was coming, John the Baptist went out and said the king was coming. What does this have to do with the launching of Jesus' ministry? Well, whenever a person went out, whenever the forerunner went out, the proclaimer went out, the king would only come after the forerunner had completed his public work. I mean, the king would only appear publicly after the forerunner had left, after he was gone. He would come and announce to the village that the king was coming, and then he would move on to the next village and the next village after that, and then the king would follow after the herald, the uagelion, the proclaimer was gone. John the Baptist is in prison. He is the herald, or he's the proclaimer. He's out of the picture. So if he is out of the picture, and he's the one who has said the king is coming, guess what happens next? The king comes. And so now it's the right time for Jesus to begin his ministry. How long has Jesus been waiting to begin this ministry? 30 years. 30 years. He's waited for 30 years to begin this ministry. You know, one of the things as you study the scriptures, you see that God's great men and women oftentimes have to wait. They have to wait. Moses is in the backside of a desert for how long? 40 years. He waited 40 years before God sent him into ministry. Noah built an ark for decades. And we see that God oftentimes prepares his people through waiting. Now, how many of you just love to wait? Same response, all three of us. Everybody laughs. I mean, if you're like I am, you don't like to wait. I I, I am one, Bev can tell you, that that's not one of my hallmarks. I've got many fallacies and many faults, and that is certainly one of them. You go to food, service is slow, and you're waiting. You're just praising God the whole time, aren't you? You go to Walmart to check out any time, and you wait. You're on 31st Street, and you look at your watch and say, "Uh uh-oh, it's 10 till 5. I better make it through that light, otherwise I am going to wait. Wait. Waiting is a difficult game. It was Charles Swindoll who said, perhaps after suffering, waiting is the greatest education we get in the spiritual life. Waiting. Just waiting upon God. I I don't know about you, but I I am one who doesn't like to wait. About uh, four years ago, I I shared with you, uh, we'd gone to see the movie The March of the Penguins. 
Who of you saw that movie, March of the Penguins? I am glad I am not a penguin, I can tell you that. <laughs> For any number of reasons, I think they're kind of funky looking, but uh, there, there are other reasons besides that. It, it, I, I begin, I, I've got a fetish whenever I see something uh, and get interested in it, I start reading. So I read a couple of books about penguins. We ended up in South Africa, and we actually uh, saw emperor penguins. These are in Antarctica. Antarctica is basically a huge ice rink. I mean, it's basically a huge ice rink. It's about 5 million square miles of ice. The wintertime temperatures go as low as 70 to 80 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. That's without a chill factor. And it's quite interesting. These are due. Do you know what they're doing? They're waiting. If you study the emperor penguin at all, here's what happens. Just before winter sets in, the ladies lay eggs in egg. Female penguins lay one egg, period. And after they lay their egg, you know what they do? They leave. They go with the girls to eat for two months. How's that, ladies? I mean, literally, they take off, they go with the gals and say, we're out of here, and they leave daddy behind. Daddy is literally sitting on an egg for about 60 days. It takes 60 days for an emperor penguin to have an egg hatch. The woman goes out. In two months, she gains about 15 pounds. Some of you are saying, I can do that. That's not a problem. But for two months, she goes out. She fills her belly. She comes back just before, just after this egg is hatched to feed the new little penguin. She comes back without as much as a kiss. This guy's been sitting on an egg in the ice for 60 days. No TV, no internet, no nothing. And she comes back after 60 days. He skedaddles. She says, you go find food for your own. And it usually takes him anywhere from 10 to 14 days to find open water. This dude has been without food, without water, without his wife around for 60 days. And then she says, adios. And he takes off. She stays. And basically, she burps up all the stuff she's taken out. And the little dude feeds, and he doesn't. I'm so glad I'm not a penguin. Bev left to go shopping with the girls to eat and shop for 60 days and left me back keeping the kids. I don't know. I'd be, I don't know, Harry Carey. <laughs> but they wait. That's what Jesus has us do sometimes. We just wait. I don't know about you, but I don't like waiting. I don't like waiting. It's interesting when we wait in the spiritual life, an amazing thing happens. In Isaiah chapter 40, this dude's waiting again. In Isaiah 40, it says, Even youths grow tired and weary, young men stumble and fall. Those who wait in the Lord renew their strength. Somehow, when we wait upon God, we get stronger. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not typically my experience. But it says, if you wait upon God. So here's the best advice I can give some of you this morning. Wait. Wait. Some of you are about to make decisions, impulsive decisions that are going to rob you of great joy, that are going to steer you away from God, that are going to be sinful choices. I'm telling you to wait. It's the best advice I can give to some of you right now. The right time for Jesus to launch his ministry is after the herald, the Uagelion, the proclaimer, is gone. He's in the dungeon. He's in jail. John the Baptist is off the scene. So now it's time for the king to come. He comes to the right place. If you look at the next verses, it tells us where Jesus would launch his ministry. He left Nazareth, and he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea. And then in verse 14, it says he did this to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. The prophecy of Isaiah is found in verses 15 and 16. It says, in the land of Nephilim, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan River, or beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light to those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death. Upon them dawned a great light, or dawned a light. 
Jesus launched his ministry not only from the right time at the right time, but from the right place. You see, if he was truly the Messiah, then he would fulfill the scriptures that were spoken of him. And the scriptures spoken of him said he would come from where the tribes of these two tribes that are mentioned. And he said he would come from that region of the Galilee. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to us, but if you look on a map, you can see exactly where this is. Galilee is in the northern, this is the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum became the home base of Jesus. This is where James and Andrew, Peter, John, John, this is where they were all from. They were fishermen. They were in the northern slope of the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful place. We've been there. Three tours we've led to Israel. Hopefully in about three years we'll do another one. But uh, th- the three times we've been there, it's a beautiful place. The Be- Mount of Beatitudes is over here where Jesus spoke uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And he ends up housing and living in Capernaum for most of his ministry. Nazareth is where he came from. It's where he grew up. He was born down in Bethlehem. Jerusalem was kind of the New York City of that day. It was the hub of everything. Education, finance, everything within Israel. By the way, in today's modern events, this is the hot spot of our world. You're reading all about the Palestinians. Here's Jerusalem. Actually, Bethlehem is controlled by the Palestinians, right next to one another. If you go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, you go through checkpoints, and uh, we've done that the last couple of times we've been there. Also, this is a portion occupied by the Palestinians. This is uh, Syria and that area, and literally when you drive along the West Bank, you're in your tour bus, and I am literally from here to Bruce from the border. And so that's where you are. That's what's happening in the world right now today. Jesus is based out of Capernaum. It's the right place because the scriptures say that the Messiah would come from Galilee. And it's a place that was looked down upon. In fact, later on in John's gospel, some would say, is he the Messiah? Others said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? How could he come from there? That's like a place where country bumpkins come from. Last hour I said it would be like coming from Buckholz. And I had four guys wanting to beat me up because they're all from Buckholz. I mean, they came out, well, why would you use buckholes? I'm just kidding, guys. I'm just kidding. But it would be like coming from the country. It, it would be like saying I'm from central Texas and people on the east coast and west coast say, yeah, you're nobody. I, I mean, everything that took place took place in Jerusalem. It was the Mecca. It was the center of the Israeli world at that time and still is. But Jesus came from Galilee. Why did he come from Galilee? First of all, to fulfill prophecy. Secondly, Galilee was of the Gentiles. Therefore, Christ came to a crossroads. He came not only to the Jewish people that he was a part of, but he came to the Gentiles as well. He came to all men. And thirdly, this was an area not filled with uh, the religious traditions that Jerusalem would have. Jesus didn't come from an area that was as bound as Jerusalem would be bound. And so he came to shed light upon the darkness. He came not only at the right time in the right place, but he came to make the right proclamation. If you look down at, uh, at the next verse, verse 17, it's the same statement that John made in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. If you write in your Bible, circle the word repent. It's the key word there. He's saying the king is coming. King Jesus is now on the scene. And the way to be part of his kingdom is to repent. That has not changed. That has not changed. You don't enter the kingdom of, of Jesus by uh, somehow joining his church. You don't do it by being baptized five different ways. You don't do it by placing money in the boxes as you leave. You don't do it by serving in the, in the nursery or wherever else. You don't do it by joining a small group. Salvation is found in Christ. He has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Repent means to turn from it. It really means to change your mind and go in the other direction. You change your mind about your sin and you embrace a Savior. If you haven't done that, then you don't know Jesus, and you haven't repented. 
One author puts it this way. Mark it down. God does not save us because of what we've done. Only a puny God could be bought with money or tithes. Only an egotistical God would be impressed with our pain. Only a temperamental God would be satisfied with our sacrifices. Only a heartless God would sell salvation to the highest bidders. And only a great God does for children what they cannot do for themselves. Those who experience salvation have declared spiritual bankruptcy. They're aware of their own spiritual crisis. Our cupboards are bare, our pockets are empty, our options are gone, and we, I, I, we have long since stopped demanding justice. We are pleading for mercy. They don't brag, they beg. They don't ask God to do for them what they can't do for themselves. They can't do without him. They have seen how holy God is and how sinful they are. They don't brag about what they've accomplished for his kingdom and purposes. What they say is we cannot do anything apart from you, and we cannot experience salvation other than through you. Have you repented? Have you come to know Christ as your Savior? The message is so simple. John the Baptist is in the wilderness. Jesus comes on the scene, and they both have the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I've shared this story before. I, I, one of the things I started reading about on the uh, anniversary, 100th anniversary of the Titanic sinking, I, I began to read, or the 90th anniversary, I think it was, of the Titanic sinking. A few years back, I began to read, read three different books on Titanic. It's quite interesting. Well, here's a question. After the Titanic sunk, how would you inform people that their loved ones had died? This is the offices of the White Star Shipping Lines. They were the owner of the Titanic. Actually, it's an interesting place in London now. If you go to London, uh, you can still go to those offices. But you know what it is? Anybody been to the White Star offices? It's called the Texas Embassy. It's a Tex-Mex cafe in London right now. <laughs> Pretty interesting. Uh, we've been there a couple of times. Uh, you, you go there. It's owned by a guy from Salado, actually, Gene Street, who owned uh, some restaurants there and some other ones. And it, it, it's, I guess it's still there. It's been several years since we've been there. But for a number of years, that's what it is. But anyway, these people are waiting to get messages. On the top of those poster boards, uh, th- there were two headings. One heading said, those known to be lost. The other heading said, those known to be saved. And every time a name came to the White Star shipping lines, one of the one of the secretaries walked out and wrote the name on one side or the other. Those known to be saved, those known to be lost. Spiritually, every one of us have our name on one of those poster boards. Either you are known to be saved or you're known to be lost. You're lost if you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. The Scriptures say you're separated from Him. But you're saved when you repent, when you trust in Christ and Christ alone for eternal life and eternal salvation. So I ask you again, have you repented and trusted Christ for your salvation? If so, your name goes under the column known to be saved. Otherwise, your name remains in the other column of those who are known to be lost. So Jesus came at the right time, to the right place, with the right proclamation. John the Baptist came to introduce the king. If the story ended there, it would be great. But something happens to John. Something happens to John. He's in a dungeon. And all of a sudden, in that dungeon, John is filled with doubt. When John saw Jesus coming to be baptized, he pointed to him before the audience that was gathered there being baptized by John. 
And he looked at Jesus and he proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's an exclamation point. He says to the whole crowd as Jesus walks up, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now in Matthew chapter 11, that exclamation point turns into a question mark. John's in the dungeon. He's been arrested. And if you look at verse 3, it says, Say to Jesus, Are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? John the Baptist? I mean, there are a lot of things you might call John the Baptist, but a doubter would not have been one of them. I mean, John the Baptist was an amazing man. He, he was willing to point his finger in the face of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He, he was willing to stand and, and say, this is indeed the Son of God. But now that exclamation point is a question mark. He sends his disciples with a bundle of doubt, and he says, drop this off at the feet of Jesus and ask him, is he truly the Messiah? John knew he's about to die. And he says, I've got to make sure I'm sacrificing my life. And he's who he claimed to be. He's who he claimed to be. I'm glad they had uh, color pictures of John the Baptist back then, by the way. This is uh, <clears throat> not sure who took it, but John had never known doubt. Hunger, yes. Loneliness, often. Doubt, never. He knew raw conviction, ruthless pronouncements, and rugged truth. Such was John the Baptist's conviction as fierce as a desert sun until now. Now the sun is blocked. His courage wanes. The clouds come. He faces death. He doesn't wave a fist of victory. He raises a question. His final act is not a proclamation of courage, but a confession of confusion. Find out if Jesus is the Son of God or not. John the Baptist doubting. It's not an urban legend, it's true. I mean, there are sometimes you read something and you think, this can't be true. This can't be true. You go to your mailbox, you grab a bundle of mail, and on the outside of the envelope it says, you have won. Do you doubt it? Or does your heart start racing and the adrenaline start pumping and you run and say, Babe, go ahead and pack your bags. We're headed for the Caribbean. We won! <laughs> or you get an email from a dude in Nigeria. <laughs> I get them three times a week. I've got $24 million coming to me. If you can just open a bank account in America and put $5,000 into it, your $5,000 will become $5 million. It doesn't work. I've tried it three times. It doesn't work. I'm drowning. <laughs> I mean, there's some things you look at and say, you doubt it. You know it's not true. It's not going to happen. Well, you look at John the Baptist and say, this can't be right. But it is. John the Baptist became a doubter. Is he the Messiah or is he not? You know, here's what I appreciate about John. In his doubts, he went to the one who could answer his questions. He bundled up his doubts. He sent them to Jesus because Jesus can answer his questions. He didn't wallow in his questions. He went to the one who could answer his questions. A friend once told me, Gary, I think Satan doesn't want us to ask questions of God because he knows we're going to get the answers. He's right. You can go to the Father with questions. Let me invite some of you to do the same. Some of you are mired in doubt, and instead of bringing it to Jesus, you've been wallowing. You look like this picture right here. You you, you wallow. You wallow. You wallow in the muck. Let me broaden that out. Some of you may not be wallowing in who Jesus is like John was struggling with, but, but you wallow in sin. You're in the muck, and you don't want to give it up. You're just wallowing. You're wallowing. 
you won't go to the one who can deal with it or who can answer those questions you just wallow. Some of you are mired, you're wallowing in bitterness and self-pity and unforgiveness. You're just mired in that muck. You're wallowing. You won't give it up. You won't go to the one who can relieve you of that burden. Some of you are wallowing. You're making excuses about a bad marriage. And you're not doing your part or you're pointing your finger at your mate. And you're thinking, I'll be happy when. And you're just you're mired and you're wallowing. You've got to do what John did. You've got to go to the Savior. And you've got to say, tell me. Tell me. I'm teachable. I want to know. God can deal with your doubts. There's a difference, though, between unbelief and doubting. Henry Drummond, the author of the last century, put it this way as he contrasted doubt and unbelief. Christ never failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is can't believe, unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honest, unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light, unbelief is content with darkness. If you get doubts, you bundle them up, you send them to Jesus, he can deal with that. He'll answer those questions. Unbelief, unbelief is when you need to come to the foot of the cross and look up and recognize he is who he claimed to be. Bring your doubts to the Savior. For unbelief, you come to salvation. John the Baptist doubted. What I love is the confirmation of Christ, the confirmation of who he was, and the confirmation of John. When Jesus feels the weight of John's struggle, he doesn't stop to lecture John. He doesn't send his disciples back and rebuke his friend. In fact, Jesus doesn't say anything at first. He just listens, and he says he he knows mere words will not lift John's burden. So Jesus says, give John the Baptist evidence. Give him evidence. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered the disciples and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. And then he quotes two passages from Isaiah. Tell John the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now why in the world would Jesus say, Go to John and tell him these things? Because in the book of Isaiah, one of Isaiah's, two of Isaiah's prophecies lumped together in that one verse, Isaiah saying, when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will do these things. He will heal the blind. He, he will heal the leper. He, he will do all the things that are mentioned here. He will care for the poor. He'll give the deaf hearing. He said, tell John what I'm doing because John knew the Old Testament scriptures. John would know that he is indeed the expected one because only the expected one, only the Messiah could do what I'm doing. So Jesus doesn't point his finger in the face of his friend. He doesn't rebuke his friend. He sends his friend evidence that he is who he claimed to be. When you have doubts, you look at the work of Jesus. When you have questions, you look at the work of Jesus. And you see that he is who he claimed to be. John doubted. Jesus says, look at what I'm doing and you'll know who I am. And then Jesus says in verse 11, truly I say to you, Among those born of women, none has arisen that's any greater than John the Baptist. John may have been confused about who Jesus was, but Jesus was not confused about who John was. He said, John is one of the greatest men ever to be born. He was my Uigelion. He was the heralder. He was the proclaimer that the king was coming, and now I'm here. He had doubts, but those doubts were filled in, and he believed. John the Baptist is a man to be honored, is what Jesus says. And then you advance a few chapters to Matthew 14, 
and you read about the end of John's life. He meets a second king. It's not King Jesus, it's King Herod, Herod the Tetrarch. And you know the story. This man is an ungodly man, an immoral man. He's sleeping with his brother's wife. John has pointed out his sin to him. And because of the shame and the embarrassment, the woman that he's involved with and her family say, what we want at a birthday party, what we want at the celebration is the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So John the Baptist, for speaking truth and following God and doing what's right, is martyred. His life is taken. By the way, there's a really bad theology out there right now. It's been out for about the last 20, 25 years. It's called health and wealth, that if you walk with Jesus, you'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy. I'm going to tell you, that did not fit the life of John the Baptist, who walked intensely with Jesus. Come with me to the Congo. We've been praying. I've been praying. I've been reading about the Congo in 1996. Went to Rwandan refugee camps in the Congo. Right now, that place is in the midst of total chaos. If you've been following the news at all, you know that there are folks that stay behind the Congo. They're bad people. M16 is the name of that group. It's a rebel group. They've gone into Goma, Congo, which is where we stayed for a week during ministry. And they've gone in there. They've raped multiple women. I mean, they've raped thousands of women. They've murdered hundreds of people. Uh, pastors that we know have run into the hills. They've, they're hiding. They're, 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 they, they are about to become martyrs for the faith. Just Google up Congo and begin reading about Goma, G-O-M-A, Congo. It's a terrible tragedy. Just because you walk with Jesus, just because you love Jesus, just because you honor Jesus, doesn't mean you might not be martyred, doesn't mean you might not receive any rewards here. Those rewards are in heaven. John the Baptist was a prophet sent to prepare the way of the king. John the Baptist, simple man. No education, lived in the wilderness, but lifted up the king. And Jesus says there's no greater man born to woman than John the Baptist. A humble man, a godly man, a man who was not the light but pointed people to the light, who was sent to prepare the way for a king. By the way, the word sent is italicized because for the next four weeks, that's the theme on Sunday mornings here. We're going to look at sent. Look at Jesus, who was sent to invade our planet. The Savior, who is incarnated, who became man, sent for four weeks. The fourth of those four weeks, we're going to look at us being sent into the world, just as Jesus was sent into our world, we are sent into this world. John was called into the presence of the living God. If I mention the name Oswald Chambers... Any of you recognize that name? Recognize the name Oswald Chambers? There's a devotional that many of us have used over the years called My Utmost for His Highest that Chambers actually he did not write. Maybe you thought he did. Those are sermons, lectures he gave and uh, notes that he, that he had. His wife took all these notes from his sermons, saved many of his notes, and basically she compiled this into devotional thought. First time I went through my utmost for his highest, I'm trying to picture my mind Oswald, Oswald Chambers. If you ever read it, it's filled with great wisdom. If you ever use devotional, it's not an easy devotional guide, but, but it's a great devotional guide. Deep thoughts. In my mind, I picture a guy in his 70s, maybe his 80s, don't you? I mean, if you ever read my utmost for his highest, it's filled with wisdom, it's filled with insight, it's filled with guidance. But the truth of it is, Oswald Chambers spoke most of those words, wrote most of those words in his 30s. He died at age 43. 
He was born in Britain when World War I broke out. He was already involved in ministry. He decided he wanted to serve his country, and so he volunteered to be a chaplain to the troops, uh, the British troops, and they sent him to Egypt to minister to the troops there. At first they were skeptical of this chaplain who wasn't even part of the army. He actually just went there to minister. His wife Biddy came with him. They opened their house, and the troops began to love on them, care for them. At age 43, he had appendicitis. They went and do surgery. The surgery went wrong. Infection went in. At age 43, he went to meet the Savior. It's interesting. When Oswald Chambers uh, was escorted to his graveside, uh, over 200 men, 200 soldiers in their dress uniforms escorted his casket. He was much beloved. The amazing thing, though, is... When Oswald Chambers died, his godly family was back in England. His godly wife was with him in Egypt. In that day and age, he communicated through cable. And we don't even know if they had word back in England that he was sick. But Biddy, his wife, after Oswald died, sent a four-word cable back to his family in England. You know what that cable said? Oswald, in his presence. That was it. No more. Oswald, in his presence. And that family knew what it meant because Oswald Chambers was a man who knew and walked with Jesus. John, in his presence. I hope you can put your name there. What a simple epitaph. Gary, in his presence. And hopefully generations will know what that means. A simple epitaph for a simple man who lived his life lifting up others. Father, help us to be like that. Help us to be like the John the Baptist, like John the Baptist was, who lifted up the Savior, honored the Savior, was the forerunner to the Savior, but moved out of the way so the Savior, the King, could come and introduce his kingdom. If you're here today and you aren't sure if Jesus Christ is your Savior, you're either, you, if you're not sure about that, you are known to be lost. And your name can be moved to that category of known to be saved if you will just admit to God that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and ask Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. He'll do that right now. It's a simple transaction. He paid the price you only receive. And if you know the Savior and you're wallowing right now, unforgiveness, self-pity, wallowing in the throes of narcissism, whatever it might be. Would you confess that before the living God? Beg Him to free you this day. Bundle up your doubts. Bundle up what you're wallowing in. And lay at the foot of the Savior. Father, it's our desire that Jesus be lifted up and all men be drawn to him. That's why we do what we do and say what we say, just as John did. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And you're dismissed.